If you want a satisfying career and a fulfilling family life, this is the podcast for you. Join me, Joel Lulovich, and me, Lucy Dickens, as we share strategies and advice to help you keep your balls in the air. Welcome to the Juggle Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Joel Lulovich. And Lucy Dickens, welcome back to the Juggle Podcast. If you've been listening to our recent episodes, then you'll know that we're sharing some of our most popular and favorite episodes with you out of the last 110 or so episodes that we have done in the last couple of years. And today's is all about time management. Lucy's favorite topic, right? My favorite topic and your one of your least favorite topics <laughs> or no. you want it to be your favorite topic. I think it's something that I do love talking about and love learning about, but I just feel like I'm really bad at implementing it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're not on your own, right? Because (laughs) the overwhelming majority of people tell us that one of the biggest challenges they face is managing their time, finding enough hours in the day to fit all of the things that need to be done. Yeah. I mean, in the Facebook group that we have, our Juggle community, we ask everyone when they join the group, you know, what's your biggest challenge? And it's overwhelming that it's, you know, there's different variations on it, but it's like uh, time. It might be as simple as time or it might be as more descriptive like uh, fitting in everything that I want to do, you know, time for me, time for work, time for my kids, time for my partner. So many of the comments come back to how do I effectively do it all? Mm-hmm. Because there are only so many hours in the day, right? Yes. And with things like coronavirus (laughs) taking what it seems like, feels like it's taking hours from our day. I mean, sure, some of us have saved time by not having to commute maybe when we're working from home, but it's still a struggle. Yeah. And for many of us, it took a lot more of our time. You know, the homeschooling thing would just decimated a lot of people's working hours and ability to work. And if it didn't decimate their working hours, what it did was shift their working hours to the evening so that then they lost whatever they would normally do in the evening. You know, it's just crazy amounts of impact in in many different ways. And it it has also had positive effects. You know, it, it, it has people reflecting on do I want to be doing this? Do I want to be spending my time here? Oh, you know what? Now that I don't have to spend my time traveling to work on a bus or train, I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Um, Or now that I'm not taking my kids to those extracurricular activities, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) So we thought that time management is, it's always an interesting and relevant topic for people like us, but perhaps you might be thinking about your time in a different way. Mm. And so we thought that now was a good time to remind you of some strategies for how to think about your time in a different way. And we spoke in this interview to Laura Vanderkam, the author of several time management and productivity books. And she is my favorite author on time management. (laughs) I love her work. And you'll hear me tell her in the interview how much I love her work. (laughs) So she comes very highly recommended by me. If anyone can help us manage our time, it is Laura Vanderkam. Yeah. And this episode came out pretty much two years ago. It was episode number 15 originally, and now it is episode 114. So it was one of our early ones. And I remember when you told me that you wanted to interview Laura Vanderkam, and I'm like, sure, you know, I hadn't heard of her at that point, that you were a big fan already. And the excitement when she said yes and was keen to be on the show was so fantastic. And it's probably why 
and probably how it comes across in the episode too. (laughs) So Laura's not about finding shortcut productivity hacks or trying to get you to save time by folding washing while you wait for the kettle to boil or that kind of thing. (laughs) Instead, she has studied how thousands of professional women and men spend their time and she analyzes what they do to make them good at it. And that's the advice that she shares in her books and in the interview. And in fact, didn't we, we did a time management study of ourselves we before did. we interviewed her. Mm, we did. That's something I've only actually just done again recently. Somebody else, a business coach asked me to do it. And as always, whenever I do one of these little time management analysis of not just my working day, but my whole 24 hours a day and over a course of a week or two, I always find something that I'm like, oh, why, you know, that time just totally disappeared. It's Facebook. It's a time suck. suck. But don't let that stop you from joining our Facebook community because it's a good (laughs) (laughs) because it's a great place to spend your time. Yes. And when we are full of helpful pearls of wisdom like this episode, then you definitely want to be there. Yeah. It's useful then. It's not just the mindless scroll, which is unfortunately how I do spend some of my time. Yes. Yes. All right. Let's press play. All right. Enjoy. Enjoy. We are very excited to bring you today's guest, Laura Vanderkam. Laura is the author of several time management and productivity books, including her latest book, Off the Clock, I Know How She Does It, What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast, and 168 Hours. Her work has appeared in publications including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, and Fortune. She is the co-host with Sarah Hart Unger of the podcast Best of Both Worlds. She lives outside Philadelphia with her husband and four children and blogs at lauravandercam.com. Thank you for joining us, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting for all of us and I'm super excited that we have three different accents on the podcast episode today. (laughs) I'm not sure. Yeah, mine is uh, straight up East Coast US, I guess. (laughs) It's kind of nice. I like it. We've got the Aussie, the uh, the English lady and the American. It's all good. So getting into it, Laura, we are all women here juggling careers and family. And the most common complaint that we hear, and I think that you also hear, is that people like us don't have enough time. And a lot of them start looking for productivity hacks. And when Lucy and I were talking about this, we were, I think, drawing from an um, example you shared in one of your recent books about cleaning the shower while you're in it and things like that. And we know that this is not what you're really about. So tell everybody and tell us what you really think people need to do when they're juggling their career and their family. Yeah. I mean, I find these time hacks kind of hilarious, right? Because we hope that we're like, we're going to find an extra hour in the day. And, and then it is stuff like clean the shower while you're in it or like send messages. If you send a lot of emails where the answer is okay, just write K instead of okay. <laughs> <laughs> Some tiny little bit of time, which is just ridiculous. Like you're not going to suddenly have this magically wonderful life by typing K instead of okay on all your emails. I think we need to approach it from a different perspective, which is recognizing that time the way I refer to it is this time is elastic. Like it'll stretch to take in what you choose to put into it. Different people use different metaphors. People have read, read Stephen Covey, like the, you know, big rocks and little rocks. Yes. Um, but if you put the important stuff in first, everything else will naturally take less time. 
And you see this, I mean, all the time if you just observe your schedule. Like if you're really into a project at work, like it's so exciting to you, you're motivated by it. You're spending a lot less time randomly checking email because you yes. don't care. You're focused on the project. Same thing in your personal life. If you're out with friends having a grand old time, you're much less motivated to spend hours on Instagram because you've got real people to hang out with. So in general, we want to look for these high value, enjoyable, meaningful activities, put those into our lives wherever we can. And then the sort of time hackery takes care of itself. Am I understanding from your book? And this was my biggest takeaway from I Know How She Does It was about mindset and the shift from thinking I don't have enough time to saying it's not a priority. Yeah, I think this is really just talk about something that will change your life if you really adopt this mindset. It was a phrase that was given to me by a, an incredibly busy woman who I interviewed. She was running a small business. She also had six kids, like a lot going on, right? Mm. And, and yet she seemed to have time for anything that she wanted to really do. And that is basically what she said to me. She said, I don't have time means it's not a priority. And I love that because it is more accurate language. I mean, whatever it is that you're not doing, I'm guessing if somebody out of the blue offered to pay you $100,000 to do it, you'd do it, right? <laughs> whatever it is, um, <laughs> it's not currently a priority for you. It would become a priority for you if that was on the line. And so we can recognize from this that it's not about lacking time. It's that it hasn't gone high up the priority list yet. And so if you have this mindset, it, what it shows you is that time is for the most part, a choice. Now, granted, there are huge constraints on that statement, and some people are able to exercise more choice in their life than others through various circumstances. There may be choices made in the past that are influencing your choices now. I get that. However, if we approach it from this mindset and at least try to convince ourselves that this is more a matter of choice, then you can start exercising more control over the time that you can control. And slowly that sphere of, of influence can start becoming a little bit bigger. Now, your books are based on evidence that you've actually gathered from how people are spending their time. You've conveniently had a whole lot of guinea pigs who have said yes when you've asked them to track their time. And you, you really do say that everybody should track their time and that we should all be doing this. So why do you feel it's so important? Well, I mean, it's like anything else. If you want to make a good decision, you need to base your decision on good data because if you don't have good data, how do you know you're changing the right thing? It could be that something you think is a problem really isn't or something you've never even thought of is, is taking a lot more time than you imagine. And so if you're actually bothering to make changes in your life, you want to make sure that they're the right changes. Yeah. <laughs> so that seems pretty straightforward to me. A lot of people have an idea of where their time goes. The issue is that that idea is sometimes wrong. And it's yeah. wrong in very specific ways. And so we need to be very careful about choosing certain changes based on those assumptions, given that people's assumptions tend to be wrong in very specific ways. That was a long way of saying a lot of people tend to overestimate how much they work. They underestimate how much they sleep. They underestimate how much free time they have, which makes sense. I mean, people overestimate the things that they don't want to do. They underestimate the things they do want to do. That's just human nature, right? And so we want to make sure that we have actual numbers and that, you know, we also have this story of what is a typical week and a typical week in our mind has a certain, is a certain way, but that way may not happen nearly as often as you think it does. Mm. Uh, and, and so all these things can push the numbers one way or another. So make sure we have the right numbers and then we can make smart choices. And that's true about a typical week. And one of the things that you say is that people who track their time continuously like you say there isn't such thing as a typical week because every week has something different. Every week has something. In most people's minds, a typical week is the week where they were sort of most present at work 
But there are a lot of weeks that aren't like that for various reasons. I mean, there are holidays <laughs> through yes. the year, for example. There are days where you might randomly be off for a bit, like you have a dentist appointment or something or, or you know, a kid event that you have chosen to block off to go to. And in many people's minds, those aren't typical, but all those atypicalities sort of add up and become more typical than not. Or, you know, it was a slow week. People send in the log and be like, oh, it was a slow week. Well, will you never have another slow week again? I don't know. Maybe not, but uh, we, should, we should know. And sometimes we have a week that's actually very busy, but it's good to see that maybe that you know going in that that's busy. Here's what a busy week looks like. And then maybe track another week and see, you know, if there are others that look different. I mean, you know, we just want to make sure that we have an accurate picture of life. So we decided to use ourselves as guinea pigs. Very exciting. (laughs) In preparing for this episode. So we decided, well, Lucy encouraged me to join her in this test of tracking our own time for two weeks. So we did that in the two weeks pretty much leading up to to today and the interview. And we're going to share with you and with everyone what we learned. But first, we want to talk about your new book. So thank you very much for kindly sending us the advanced copy of Off the Clock. It was very special to be an early reader of the book. And we wanted to talk about what we've learned and what you're sharing in that book. So we understand that the book was written based on the research of 900 people tracking their time for one day on a Monday. A normal March Monday. Yeah, so I recruited 900 people to track their time for a day. All these people had conditions that would indicate that they have busy lives. So they all worked full time. They also had families. So right there, those are things that can make people more busy than others. So we wanted to make sure everyone had that. And then after having them track their time for the day, I asked them questions about how they felt about their time various questions to give them a time perception score in terms of how much time they felt they had, how relaxed they felt about time, things like that. And so then I could compare the people who were sort of in the top 20% of time perception scores, the people who felt most relaxed, like time was most abundant, with the people who felt most harried and stressed, the people on the bottom end of the scale. I could actually look at the differences between their time diaries and see what was there. And so that's what this book is based on. So the book's called Off the Clock and Off the Clock in most people's view, is a common phrase that we associate with the time when we've finished work. So we finished work and we're off the clock. But you use it in a much broader context than that. So can you explain to everybody what you say it means to be off the clock? In my view, being off the clock is having this sense of time freedom. And by that, I mean that you feel largely in control of your time. You feel like you are mostly spending your time on things that matter to you. And you also feel relaxed about it. And so I think all those conditions could be certainly part of being off the clock in the sense of being not at work. Of course, there can also be times where you feel off the clock when you are at work too, if you're (laughs) deeply absorbed in a project you love. I mean, then you don't really feel like you're watching the minutes. So it's being at a state in life where you aren't watching the minutes, hoping they will move faster. You sort of pay attention to, to life. A lot of people spend a lot of life stuck in this position where you are looking at the minutes, hoping they will go faster. And some of life is just like that. But, you know, hopefully over time we can have as little of life as possible having that feeling. It's funny that you mentioned feeling off the clock when you're at work, because on Tuesday this week, I would normally be at home with my daughter, but I went into the city for a few different things. I had a work breakfast in the morning, and then we did a podcast interview, and then I did a little bit of work, and then I had a meeting, and I was saying to Joe, I felt free. I felt so free, and even though I was working and I was doing podcast stuff, I said to Joe, look, I'm off the clock. This is my off the clock day. <laughs> it's and your I off did- the clock day. 
<laughs> because normally I would be, you know, at home with my daughter or I'd be at work. And so I would have some sort of obligation, but I could just do whatever I wanted. And it was lovely. Uh-huh. And I want more. It was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> and that is certainly part of it. I mean, so for people who have incredibly busy lives with a lot of obligations, sometimes it's wonderful to plan in these days where you have no such obligations and you are totally just doing what you want to do. But I think we can also sort of broadly build life to do things that we want to do, some of which do require obligations. I mean, most job projects that we are getting into, I mean, it requires spending a certain quantity of time on it and planning it out and all that, but it feels very wonderful to use our brains that way. Or it could be, you know, things we're doing with our families that may feel wonderful and exciting too, but obviously families come with a lot of obligations too. So it's sort of a mix. You, You have to accept some of these obligations to get to these wonderful moments as well. And that's true. And that touches on one of the main questions I had for you around the book, which as I read, it kind of felt like a bit of a conflict. So you talk about creating memories as a way of stretching the experience of time. And you talk about creating effortful fun and how it's important to put effort into that. But then you also say that we shouldn't fill time and that we shouldn't commit to too many things and that we have to keep blank space. And so as I was reading those, I was kind of asking myself, well, how do we reconcile these two things? How do we keep put both of those things together. Well, I think it's pretty simple in that you want to get rid of stuff that you feel mediocre about or not as excited about so that you have space for the stuff that's really exciting to you. Because if you've taken, agreed to be on, say, a 6 p.m. conference call that is sort of eh to you, like you're not sure it's really in the most important work priorities for you, well, you're probably a lot less likely to go to that salsa dancing class in the evening, right? That adventure you might have. And so when we fill our lives with these things that we don't necessarily want to do, we don't have space for the things that we do. Somebody actually said that very sort of specifically to me on their answers that they gave for this time diary study. They said, well, if I'm too busy doing things I want to do, then I'm too busy to take stuff that I don't want to do. So I think you can simultaneously free up space and then know that it's space that's freed up so you can do awesome things with it. Not all obligations are good or bad. There are good obligations or bad obligations and, and freely chosen ones often feel pretty cool. Yeah, that's definitely true. One of the things that I think of though when I when I hear this is that some people just like being busy. And I think you've said it in as well that, you know, we throw this word around, busy, 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 all the time. How are you? I'm busy. And it's become this glorification of busy. And that's how people want to live their lives. And they don't they kind of feel that unless every single minute of the day is full and busy, that they don't have the kind of life that they should have and that they're not keeping up with the Joneses or or whoever it might be. So when people talk to you about about being busy or I'm too busy, busy, busy. How do you normally respond to that? I mean, I try to be polite in person. (laughs) (laughs) People can tell me whatever they want about, about their lives and I'll be, that's great. That's great. I'm excited for you. But I think this sort of busy, busy, busy narrative, in a way it's about showing how important we are, right? Because the, the definition of busy is that you have a lot of demands on your time. That means that demand for your time is high which means you must be just like incredibly awesome that everyone wants a piece of you both at work and at home. And so, you know, we'd never be like, yeah, how was your weekend? Oh, I want you to know how important I am, right? Yes. Yes. My weekend was busy. That's what I'm going to tell you. But, you know, the problem of the busy narrative is I think we sometimes start to believe it and Mm -hmm. that we don't see what space is available for other things. We have people think like, oh, well, I could never, you know, join a choir because can't you see how busy I am with work and family obligations? Or I could never train for a triathlon or I could never read this book because I'm too busy. And I think that that is a bunch of nonsense because pretty much anyone can find space in their life for these things. It's just a matter of acknowledging that you 
probably do have space and then choosing to fill it with these things instead of rushing around to X, Y, or Z that doesn't matter to you. You give examples of these in some of your books where you say when an emergency happens, we find time. So we might think we don't have time to train for a triathlon or whatever, but when we have to and we have no choice, the time is there. Yeah, I mean, certainly I use the example all the time in my speeches of a woman whose water heater broke in her basement and and she had water all over the place. And this was the week she was recording her time log for me. So she had to deal with it. Like, I mean, there's water all over her basement. So there's the cleaning it up, the, the plumbers, the cleaning crew, all this stuff. And it takes seven hours of her week. If you think about a lot of time management literature, is sort of structured along the lines of let's find another hour in the day. Yeah. Well, she found another hour in the day over this whole week. She found seven hours. But, you know, at the start of the week, would have been pretty hard to say like, yeah, let me find seven hours to train for triathlon. I'll find seven hours to make significant headway on reading War and Peace. Because those things weren't, designated as a priority for her. And so it's really once something rises up the priority list, um, for whatever reason, we find the space for it. So we can just decide that we're going to find the space for it, even if it's not flooding our basements. We did a bit of a call out in our Facebook group to say, has anyone got any specific questions that they would like to ask Laura? And one of the questions that we were asked was around this concept of prioritizing time. And one of the members, her specific comment was, by the time I've done all the things I need to do, I'm too tired for me at the end of the day. What do I do about this? Well, there's a certain martyr narrative (laughs) that a lot of women walk around with. I hope she's listening right now. (laughs) I would challenge you to rethink the martyr narrative, because often it doesn't have to be fully true. I mean, yes, as moms, wives, workers, we have a lot of things that we need to take on, but we also have a lot of things we may take on that we don't have to take on, right? And, and so, you know, when people be like, oh, I'm so upset my husband's watching TV while I'm cleaning the oven. The oven's not catching fire right now. Why don't you go watch TV too? <laughs> like, yeah. You don't have to do this stuff just because it's there. And so... I would say if you talk to financial experts, a lot of them will tell you, use the phrase, pay yourself first. Yes. And the idea is that if you wait until the end of the month to save money, whatever is left over after paying all your bills, shockingly, there is rarely all that much left over to save. But if you save as soon as you get your paycheck, you'll probably still manage to pay your bills. You'll, you'll do stuff, but you will have already put the money away. One way or another, you'll get through, but you will have started building this wealth. And so it's the same thing with time. We commit to putting whatever is truly important to us into our schedules first, Mm -hmm. because the other stuff will get done because it has to get done, right? You are going to get that work project done because you are a responsible person who gets your work projects done. You are going to take your kids to the doctor because you are a responsible person who does that. If there's anything else you would like to do, make sure you stick it in first. So for a lot of people, mornings, are a good time for this because the rest of the day has yet to happen to you. Yes. I would even say, you know, think about the week as a whole and plan the stuff that's important to you Monday morning. So that big speculative work project you'd really like to do, but you never put time against because people are always like, hey, I need this, I need this. First thing Monday morning, get to the, hey, I need this, I need this, 10 o'clock on Monday, okay? Like eight to 10, you do your own stuff. You'll still be able to meet everyone's needs from 10 to five, but if you've carved out eight to 10 for your own stuff, you'll make progress on it. So I think having that mindset allows us to get done the things that we wish to do. 
It's a big ask in a lot of ways. I mean, there's there's not only the self-talk inside our own heads, there's also societal pressures and the comparison-itis that we all get from looking at what other people appear to be doing, especially when we're looking at what they appear to be doing on social media. But I definitely agree that being able to put something first thing in the morning, get it done and feel like even if you've managed to have 15 minutes to yourself, you've had something for you is very important. Yeah. And as you start doing that, it starts to change your story. It's not so much the 15 minutes itself. It's that if you can prove to yourself like, hey, I took 15 minutes to read a book I want to read and the earth did not stop spinning on its axis. Wow. Imagine that. Then that can sometimes motivate you and encourage you to stretch that a little bit. Because the truth is people care a lot less about what we do than we think. Yes. We walk around with these stories of like, oh, I have to do X, Y, or Z for person X, Y, or Z. Are you absolutely sure that person X, Y, or Z even notices, even cares? Everyone is in their own little worlds. You got to be very careful about the stories you're telling yourself. And in terms of putting your most important or putting prioritizing things and putting them first on Monday morning, you give a couple of examples in off the clock of people who are doing this. And one of them is a manager and he goes, I think he goes to the gym and then he goes to the coffee shop for a few hours in the morning and he gets his most, you know, his thinking work and his important work done so that then he's available and has the mental space by the time he gets into the office for dealing with all the people as in his management role. And I loved that idea. I work flexibly, but often I forget, you know, the very first few hours in the morning can be used for those things. You kind of think of that as waking up and having breakfast. But I really like the idea of getting out of the house and switching things up a bit and taking my laptop and going to the coffee shop and just thinking, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to put it into place. (laughs) That would be great. You know, and especially if you're managing lots of people at work. I mean, because the whole thing about being in management is that you are responding to people's needs and supporting them as they're getting their work done. And so you want to have these conversations with people and you don't want to like give off the vibe that like, I don't actually wish to be speaking to you right now because I have other things I need to do. Um, and, and so what this gentleman had figured out to do is that he was going to do that work that was important to him and needed to be focused first thing in the coffee shop where none of his employees could be coming and asking him questions. And so then by the time he showed up at work, he was totally free to respond to anything that came to him and, and to feel relaxed about responding to it as well. One of my favorite parts of your book, I think, was towards the end. And you talk about needing to invest and you use that word investing in your happiness. And by doing that with all of the resources at your hands, so your money, your time and your mental energy, we did an episode a few weeks back on seven ways to outsource because we figured that, you know, it was really important, as you say, to prioritize the things that are important to you and, and whether perhaps they're not so important, getting someone else to do them. And I had some feedback from a male listener that he didn't agree with the basic tenant of the episode because only the rich can outsource. I didn't respond very well to that, although I was very polite in public. What would you say? <laughs> Well, I think in general, there are all kinds of ways that we outsource. I mean, if you think about at work, you delegate things at work or in your outsourcing in a sense, you know, if your travel department is booking your travel, that's outsourcing in a way. I mean, if somebody else is sending the packages from your office, I mean, everybody outsources. I don't drive my letters personally to the locations where they're going. Like I, the postal service does that for me, right? Uh, I'm not, you know, butchering my own cows. I am not churning my own butter. Uh, So in that sense, everybody outsources. It's just a matter of degree. 
And so his sense of where the degree is maybe within a range of like, oh, well, this is what people could afford if they had more disposable cash versus not. But he outsources as well, unless he's like sewing his own clothes. Um, which is <laughs> I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's just that everybody has their own internal perceptions of what's okay to outsource. Yeah, what's okay to outsource. Yeah. But that's a different question versus outsourcing or not. It's like, yeah. what do you consider okay? And the curious thing about that is, is the things that people get most up in arms about are the traditional women's work. Yes. Most people don't feel bad about calling an electrician mm. or calling mm. uh, a handyman to fix stuff around the house or to get the lawn mode. If you look at what is actually outsourced, lawn care is the highest proportion. And so it's guys saying like, look, I work hard all week. I don't want to spend my Saturdays out mowing my lawn when I could be doing other things. And it's just, we have more resistance to the idea of things that are women's work because it's women. I mean, that's pretty much what it is. It's an interesting statistic. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it in the men versus women way, but yeah, it does make sense. And you say, bringing it back to time, you say that paying money to minimize the things that we don't enjoy doing can make it feel like we have more time. Well, sure. If you think about how we spend our time, I mean, there are certain minutes that you really don't enjoy, like you're counting the minutes because you're unhappy about them. Then there are things that you sort of tolerate. And then there are things that you're happy about while you are doing. And so if the chores are in the neutral to unhappy category, and you can get rid of those and spend those minutes doing something you actually enjoy, then you have made yourself feel like you have more time. Because when people say they want more time, they want time that they're happy about. Like they don't want more minutes that they're counting. They want more minutes that they're enjoying. And so using your resources can mean spending money to move minutes out of the enduring category into the enjoying category. That's a really great analogy. So we better share with you our own time tracking experiment. Yes. Okay, well, I discovered a few things. The first thing was that at the time when I was time recording, because it was the first time I'd done it, I thought that I was doing a really good job. But when I went back and reviewed it, I think I should have done a a bit more detail. I found it quite hard to categorize things into one thing. So if I look back at my two weeks, there's little mention of my daughter, but I spent four days out of each two weeks with her all day and we were just kind of around the house and so I just kind of wrote Lily or I wrote having breakfast and I was with her during those times but if you look at it it would kind of look like I wasn't with her so I can you give me some tips around detail or you can certainly put the person's name on it if you're spending time with someone and that is something you'd like to measure then Mm. why don't you you can just say breakfast with Lily you can be Mm. you know hang out at house with Lily you know read books with Lily uh, you know, trip to store with Lily. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that if that's what you want to note for yourself, if that's something that you care about tracking, then by all means track that. I think this is certainly with time tracking, it is helpful to think about the categories that you are particularly interested in and that either, you know, you may think if you want to check if I'm spending what you consider whatever the right amount of number of hours is to, to spend on it. I think you don't have to be too detailed. My spreadsheets that I use are half hour blocks. And I tend to check in maybe three or four times a day and report what I did since the last time. I find that's something that I can usually remember with a reasonable degree of accuracy. And three or four times a day is infrequently enough that it's not driving me nuts. Like I'm I'm (laughs) not spending my whole life tracking my time. I hope lawyers have some good automated system for this because tracking every six minutes would be like, whoa. (laughs) 
See, and, and, and that brings me to my learning from this experiment, although, we, you know, we, ha- we have more, but one of the things that I learned is that I'm not very good at it. And I only managed to record one week out of the two. And I think the first two days I actually put on the spreadsheet and the others are just hand scribbled notes all over the place. I'm pegging that back to the fact that I am a lawyer and that for a ridiculous part of my life, I've had to time track. And I definitely find in the legal industry here in Australia, particularly, there's a massive pushback on time recording. And that's, you know, not just lawyers, project managers, that kind of thing. So, and I think you mentioned this in your book as well, that there are those people who just have this negativity towards time tracking, which is why I wanted to ask you at the beginning to let us know the advantages to it and and the benefits and why we should do it. Because I think there are people like me who, although I want to know what I'm doing with my time and I like the idea of tracking it, I think I've just built up this resistance. (laughs) Yes. I find the resistance is interesting, right? And certainly a lot of it is lawyers who are like, yeah, you know, you already get my work hours. You are not getting the rest of my time too. Which to which I say like, nobody has to do it. Like I do. I've been tracking my time for three years now. Nobody has to do that. Yeah. not expect that. Do you know, start small, like just say, okay, well, how about two weekdays and one weekend day? All right. Three days checking in four times a day. Like we're literally talking a 15 minute investment of your time to get this data. If you find it interesting, you could maybe do a whole week, but just one week, right? Like not, not the rest of your life, not, you know, oh, you track time at work and now you have to track the rest of your time forever. (laughs) Nobody's saying forever. You know, if you don't care, like if everything's going great in your life in terms of how you spend your time, then awesome. Don't worry about it. No, I need to be tracking my time, Laura. I think I I know that. If, if you have to do it on a spreadsheet for work or whatever, and that, that is what the resistance is, is causing, then use a notebook, use something completely different. And I think that another issue that stops people up is, is a bit of a perfectionist streak. Yeah. Like they really want to capture everything. Yes. They can't get this idea of like, what was I really doing during that half hour? It's like, well, if you were mostly working, just put work. If you were mostly cleaning the house, but you stopped at one point to put in an old CD you found from college. <laughs> so I think you were watching me. <laughs> That was you, wasn't it? That was me. That was that half hour block. And I'm like, okay, I sent an email about the podcast. I did a little bit of work and then I yelled at my daughter or I cleaned the dishes or something like that. Yeah. One thing I've noticed in tracking my time for three years is I've become somewhat better about sticking with one activity for half an hour. (laughs) Because I'm like, it's easier to remember. And so, I mean, I might glance at the clock and be like, oh, well, I could get up and go do, why don't I just work for 10 more minutes and then go do something? So I've got the half hour block and then, you know, go do the other thing. And that in itself is a massive benefit to having done that process because, as we all know, the longer you can stick with the task, assuming that you're not getting to that point where you're not productive anymore, the time switching between, you know, the mental switching between tasks, you lose so much time. So that's great. There you go. Now you've got a reason to go and drink. Now I've got a reason. Other things I learned, and this one was quite interesting for me, the two weeks that we record our time, we had a public holiday on one of those days that would normally have been a work day for me. So I would have recorded, according to my other working days, eight to nine hours worth of work. And I would say during those two weeks that I wasn't particularly busy at work. So I wouldn't have expected that I worked a whole lot. In the first week, I recorded that I worked 22 hours. And in the second week, I recorded that I worked 31 And that second week was probably more like a normal week because it didn't have the public holiday. But I found that really interesting because I would have told you that I didn't work much during that week. But I did 31 hours, which is not that many hours off of a full-time work week, Yeah, which I found really interesting. So I wonder how many hours do I work when I am busier at work? Yeah, well, that's actually an interesting question. I mean, I said that a lot of times people overestimate how many hours they work. 
It's actually the opposite on the other side of 40, that when people are working part-time or whatever, they can often underestimate, which is interesting. You know, I don't tend to encounter that a whole lot in the, uh, you know, the time logs I'm seeing, because often it is people who are working full-time and complaining about their full-time hours yeah. and all that. <laughs> they are overestimating, but especially, you know, if it is, for instance, mothers in particular who have a compressed or part-time schedule sometimes wind up doing work outside of those hours for whatever reason because people ask them to because their projects haven't actually been scaled down to the point where they're part-time projects even though they've gone to part-time hours and so yeah you can wind up doing nearly full-time jobs which you know if you are working for somebody and you have taken a part-time schedule I think you need to behooves you to make sure you're only working part-time hours um, because if that's what you're for. <laughs> I think your point about working compressed hours or whatever that might be is exactly what it is for me. I have short work days on three days a week and then I work in the evenings or on the weekends as necessary. I have flexible hours so it's not a full-time part-time thing but I think because it's split up like that I don't necessarily think of all the time and how easily those big chunks of time actually do add up. Yeah, no, that can totally happen. That, that is the split shifts or the, the weekend hours where you're catching up on things. And so in your mind, if your work schedule is three shorter days, that's what you're looking at. But you're ignoring the other work that happens <laughs> that's outside of that. And so, yes, that actually is a sort of interesting thing that happens with part-time schedules. So I'm going to track on a busy work week and see what, what difference that makes in terms of hours. Yeah. <laughs> that will be interesting. I look forward to the report. Um, and the only other thing I'd like to comment on before we stop talking about our little experiment is that conveniently in the last couple of weeks, I heard this concept of a zero gap calendar. And when I first heard it, I was a bit freaked out because I just thought immediately that it meant that every single minute of your day must be scheduled out. But what this person was referring to was a retrospective zero gap calendar. So they used their calendar as a way to do the time tracking so that they would use their calendar and then go back and fill in the gaps in the calendar with what they actually did. And I thought that might be something that I might give a try rather than trying to have a separate sheet that's recording my time. I'll just use my calendar that's already got all my appointments for the day and then I'm just filling in the gaps. That can certainly help if you're trying to sort of jog your memory or or have a slightly more complete record. I think what's sort of funny about that is sometimes people say like, oh, I'm going to keep a time log. And then they turn in their week before the week has really happened. And it's just basically they're turning in their calendar. What are the odds? Exactly. As you know, if I'm making it up, sure. Why don't I make up like I slept a perfect I worked a perfect 40. Like, let me put in appointments with people who are never going to agree to meet with me too. Like, if I'm making this up. <laughs> or you've got a doctor's appointment in there and it's supposed to happen from 8.30 to 9, but, you know. <laughs> we all know it'll be exactly that time. Yeah. Nobody will ask to meet who wasn't already on the calendar. <laughs> so. Good point. <laughs> all right. One of the questions we like to ask all our guests on the show, and my favorite question, is do you have a mantra? What are the words that you live by? Let's see. I mean, I guess I don't have one that I repeat all that often, but one that I do find good for me sometimes is this idea of plan it in and do it anyway. One of the things I write about in Off the Clock is this tension between the anticipating self, the remembering self, and the experiencing self. Yes. And we live life as the experiencing self. Obviously, that's the present. But the present, I quote this philosopher saying, it's, we pamper the present like a spoiled child. So we're very often like, oh, well, I'm actually tired now. I don't feel like doing 
X, Y, or Z that I planned in or that I thought of doing that. Like, you know, oh, it's Friday night. I know the art museum is free tonight and they've got a bar and all that and it'd be really fun and live music, but uh, I don't feel like it's the traffic, it's raining, I'm tired. And so then we wind up having this more like compressed life than we would. And so if you have this mantra, plan it in, do it anyway, then you remind yourself that like the anticipating self wanted to do it. The remembering self is going to be happy that you did it. You'll probably actually enjoy it while you're there too. As we draw energy from meaningful things. It's just that you have to overcome that current present self's moment of feeling like, eh. If you can get over that, eh, then you'll have a much more full, rewarding life. And the day I read that chapter, that, that section in your book, I came home, my husband and I had planned to go out for dinner, which very, very rarely happens. And he was going away for the weekend for a triathlon. And he said, oh, I really don't feel like it. Shall we get takeaway maybe and we can just stay at home? And I said, no. <laughs> We will go anyway. <laughs> and we did go anyway. And it was lovely. <laughs> it was lovely. Well, there you go. You had a good time. Yes. <laughs> okay. You have given us already so much advice to take away from this episode. But if we were to ask you, which we are, to give us one final piece of advice for professional women like us who are managing the juggle, what would it be? I always tell people to think in terms of 168 hours, not 24. So there's 24 hours in a day. There are 168 hours in a week. That's 24 times seven. And we actually live our lives in weeks, not days. Mm -hmm. People always say, well, there's not enough hours in the day to get to everything I want to get to. And it's true. There aren't. Yes. But we don't live our lives in days. We live our lives in weeks. And so you're like, oh, I had to work late tonight. Life is terrible, horrible. I didn't exercise or spend a lot of time with my family. Okay. Well, that was one night. If we look at the whole of the week, you probably did exercise and spend time with your family. So why are you so focused on this one day where that didn't happen versus looking at time holistically? I mean, just even thinking about the hours, if you work a 40 hour work week, you know, full-time job, sleep eight hours a night. So that's 56 hours a week that leaves 72 hours for other things in the week. There's a lot of time, even if you're working a full-time job, even if you're working more than full-time hours, there's still a lot of time. So looking at 168 hours shows us that. Whereas when we're just focused on 24 hours, we, we feel like we're not getting it all done. Yeah. You feel like you're getting up, going to work and coming home and having dinner and going to bed. So <laughs> Pretty much. There's more to life than just that. I mean, I track my time on these weekly spreadsheets that start Monday at 5 a.m. So it goes Monday 5 a.m. to Monday 5 a.m. is the week. If the week starts Monday at 5 a.m., the halfway point is actually 5 p.m. Thursday, which sounds to most people like the end of the week, but, yes. it, but it's not. It's the yes. exact halfway mark. And so, you know, we think about like, well, what is my balance? Is my balance right? But we're often thinking, what is my balance Monday morning to end of day Thursday, which I don't know what it is, but probably your balance is totally different from end of day Thursday to Monday morning. And yeah. the two balances might, might balance each other out to a degree. So let's look at the whole week. I love that idea. Yeah, those ideas are um, key themes in some of your earlier books, which have been really important. And I think I've mentioned before on this podcast about viewing your time as a week and mentioned that I got that from you. And okay. I took that on and I really like that as well because people get focused on the day, on the 24 hours. Yeah, and it's just so, it's a way of limiting ourselves. When you view time more broadly, then it opens up possibilities. Thank you so much. Um, and I want to let everybody know that if they want to give time tracking a go, like Lucy and I did, that they can download the free time log on your website and time makeover guide. Um, and their website is lauravandercam.com. Um, yes. the link will be in our show notes, so I won't spell it out on air. Um, they can find the link right there and click straight on it. And of course, Laura's new book, Off the Clock, will be available on the 29th of May, but it is already available for pre-sale. You can check her website for links and all the places you can buy it, as well as her other amazing books. And as Joe mentioned, we will put links in 
our show notes to Laura's website and to her social media channels as well. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I always do. (laughs) I'm sure they noticed that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Like we said at the beginning, you can find out um, more about Laura um, on her website and we'll have links to all of those things in the show notes. And we also encourage you to join us in our Facebook group, The Juggle Community. Find all the links at thejuggle.com.au. See you next time. Happy juggling. Happy juggling.